Hi, I'm Alex Bybee, and this is Compassionate Las Vegas, the podcast. Hello and welcome to Compassionate Las Vegas, the podcast. I'm your host, Will Rucker, and I want to thank you for joining the show today with us at the podcast. We're live and in living color. Uh, It's Alex Bybee. I am so excited to have him on the show and to share his story and the work that he's doing right here in Las Vegas. As someone that is a lifelong Las Vegan, I think that's how you say it, it's going to be really interesting to discover how he views compassion passion in our city. So Alex, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much. Well, it's exciting to be here and um, trying to figure out if you look directly into the camera or you look into the Zoom tile to my left, um, one of the unique ways that we are together in the pandemic times. Yeah, it's so different. This, of course, should be happening face to face. We are only a few miles apart. And yet here we are still having to do this virtually because, you know, safety first, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah. But you have really been able to navigate life throughout this pandemic in some really cool ways. Just introduce yourself to our audience and let them know what you're up to. Sure. Well, Um, I think like everyone in the world, navigating the pandemic is uh, a daily daily struggle and finding out how to make meaning and um, joy in oftentimes what feels like monotony uh, between, you know, staying home and hopping on Zooms and answering emails. Um, So for me, getting outdoors has been really important. And as far as who I am and why I'm on the podcast today, I uh, am a Jameson Fellow alum. Um, I participated in last year's class, so 2019, which at this point feels like a lifetime ago, given all that's changed since. Um, As you mentioned in the introduction, I'm a lifelong Las Vegan, um, and I'm really excited to talk to you today about what compassion means to me, what that looks like in our city. Um, And then the work that I do during the day is I serve on the state executive team for Communities and Schools of Nevada, which is a statewide nonprofit that's an affiliate of the nation's leading dropout prevention organization. So that keeps you pretty busy, it seems like. Yeah, it definitely does. In addition to all of the dishes and meals that I now have to cook all day because I can't just grab and go like I used to in my life pre-COVID on the run. You know, you've mentioned a few of my favorite words. The the primary favorite is joy. And in this season, we are recording in the Christmas season. And so there are tons of holidays that just are all happening at one time. So this is truly a season of joy. And there are so many things that remind us, you know, even the song Joy to the World. It's just one of those Mm -hmm. times when we focus in on that, that emotion, that feeling, that energy of joy. What is the one thing that brings you the most joy? Mm. 
generally or in this time specifically? <laughs> you know what? Let's start with this time right now. What's happening in sure. your world right now? Um, I think staying connected to family has been important. Uh, you know, I think in our lives outside of social distancing and the pandemic this year, I think um, a lot of us lived really full, busy lives with engagements all across the valley or country. And I think finding, um, you know, less less need to travel and commute to places um, uh, has allowed for us to kind of double down and recommit and reconnect to our roots and to our family. So that's been bringing me a lot of joy uh, this year. Connection is so important. And in this time where, again, you and I are just a few miles apart, but we're not physically in each other's presence, that, that can mm. be difficult. On the other side of that same coin, though this is the holiday season and people are celebrating because of that, a lot of people are experiencing an incredibly difficult time. We are in the midst mm. of a once in a century pandemic. And things are just tough right now. You've got political division. Yeah. You've got all of these, these things bubbling up that just seem to, to hit us all within 2020. What would you mm. say is the thing that keeps you grounded and able to maintain in this time? Yeah, um, I think the most important thing is trying to remind myself that despite the fact that we're living through the convergence of many challenges, and I think the convergence of um, unsustainable structures and institutions and systems um, all coming to a head at once. Despite all of that, um, what I find meaning in and what keeps me grounded is knowing that every generation has its crisis that defines um, the issues of its time and the types of behaviors beliefs and attitudes that we want to manifest as a people, whether at the community level, at the national level, or the global level. And I, I'm, I'm grounded in the belief that and the knowledge that uh, humanity has been through difficult times before. And on the other side of those difficult times, those watershed moments, we've tended to find ways to be a more connected, humane, uh, productive people. And I have great faith and hope that after this crisis, uh, there will, of course, be immense struggling and pain that is unevenly spread because of the inequities that we see in our systems. And yet I have hope and faith that on the other side, we're going to see a more just, fair uh, world. Wow. Now, that is why I asked you to join the podcast, because just your, your the way that you phrase and think about things, it's just so, so powerful and it's captivating. Thank I'm you, just like lost, like, like, just, just keep talking, just say more because it's <laughs> really good. Um, but thank you. No, you're very welcome. One thing that you mentioned, of course, is that the idea of an unsustainable system. And we've had mm. several shows this season in particular that are dealing with the systems that are in place and the structures that, that uh, help us to maintain life as we know it. And I use the word help intentionally there because for a lot of people, it's hindering. And with the systems, whether it's systemic racism or uh, mm. inequality, what, whatever we may be, be dealing with, my my perspective is that at the root of all of that is a need to develop compassion 
in all all strata of humanity. So whether mm. you're you know a single mom on a fixed income, or you're Bill Gates and you've got you know billions, mm-hmm. we all need to develop that compassion to a greater degree. How do you define compassion? Mm. Wow, I guess I should have known that if I were invited to the Compassionate Las Vegas podcast, that I might be asked this question. Um, <laughs> but as you shared in our pre-meeting just a few minutes ago, sometimes that lack of preparation can lead to a more organic response. So I guess the audience will be grappling with me as I attempt to find a definition that that matches. Um, You know, I think compassion is the recognition that we are all profoundly interconnected and that whatever harms one of us harms all of us. And that because of compassion, we are called to make choices, whether at the micro individual level or the macro societal level, that put human beings at the center of the decisions that we make. For an off the cuff response, nailed it. It works. At <laughs> that works. Oh my goodness. That is a fantastic Great. way to explain it. I, I think interconnection is is the yeah. the heartbeat that we need to to develop and to to promote mm-hmm. we've again we're in the pandemic we're facing isolation and as i mentioned earlier people are yeah. struggling right now just because they they, they don't are. have that interaction i'm naturally an introvert right. so i'm loving it i'm like my battery is full i'm good to go this is wonderful yeah but i also recognize for like my best friend who is an extreme extrovert he charges up mm. by being with other people and so this right. is harder for him than for others. And yet we still, I, you know, not to get too too out there, but I, I still feel as though we're sure. one. Even though we're very, very different people, yeah. we're still one. And so that's yeah, just to consider. How do, you, how do you go about helping to bridge that gap between the thought process of individualism? You know, we, we love that as American mm. people uh, with the, mm-hmm. the reality that we are still really interconnected and truly interdependent. Yeah, absolutely. I I think that oftentimes, you know, human beings categorize most of our world in a binary framework, you know, whether it's interconnectedness and individualism or Republican and Democrat or black and white or gay or straight or uh, good or bad. I think that human beings grasp onto that system of categorizing the world because it's, uh, quite frankly, the most efficient way, I think, for people to survive. I think it's kind of rooted in our biology to make uh, simplistic categorizations that help us make quick decisions and choices. Lucky for us, we've evolved as a species and we are more organized as a people and cooperative. um, And so we don't have to think so simplistically anymore. I bring that up as a preface because on this notion of interconnectedness and individualism, I don't know that we need to reject individualism for the sake of interconnectedness or vice versa. I think that we can actually embrace the two concepts as having friction points, but oftentimes perhaps being complementary to one another. Um, People need to have a sense of their identity as unique and a part of them 
and that is sacred for a lot of people. And that doesn't make individualism bad, but it can turn into uh, a destructive force when we lose sight of our interconnectedness. And I think that our economic system certainly demonstrates uh, what happens when individualism and winners take all systems uh, are at the center of how we transact and how we do business and earn our livelihoods. I think that what we see now is an example of an unfettered individualistic system gone too far. And so now we are called to redefine what that system looks like as recognizing interdependence and interconnectedness. And so I hope that in the midst of a global pandemic, we are reminded of that. But even in this conversation we're having, uh, you're a, a collection of pixels on my screen in a discrete rectangle, and I am on yours, which makes it difficult for us to feel our interdependency because we're existing in our own solitary environments as individuals. Um, and yet, I think this moment is going to uh, paradoxically have an effect on our recognition of our interdependence and interconnectedness because of the struggling and pain that we see on such large scales um, in this country and across the, the globe. That's very interesting. And I, I think you're right. I think that we will see at the end of this, and we're already really starting to see in a number of ways, the revelation that people do matter and that it's not, you know, the fancy car, it's not being able to jet mm. set and some of these other things that we've aspired to as a culture, but it's really the right. fact that those that are essential are the ones that serve each other. I, I wrestle with even using the term essential worker because for mm. me, the quote unquote essential workers, they are really in a forced labor situation which that's a whole nother mm. episode we can you know, dive into. I'll come uh, back on the podcast for part two. Yeah, there we go. But with them <laughs> seeing that these, these positions that have been so devalued are essential now, that to me is a bright spot. And it's a, mm. a way to level the playing field in a sense, because at least now we recognize, yeah, guess what? The person stocking the shelves, they actually do matter. And they're not like a loser. Right or some of the other things people may have said in the past. Mm. I mean, you still have people out there that are just, you know, people, people being people, but, you know, yeah. as, as a collective- They're gonna think what they're gonna think, yep. Yeah, as a consciousness, we're, we're expanding and evolving to, to a new place. And I love mm. that. And with you in particular, this conversation is, is, is hard for me to have because I'm just, I'm, I'm fascinated by a lot of your viewpoints. And I'm like, where is he getting this from? Because you're, you're a few days younger than me, not much, but you know, a little bit. And it took me so long to even yeah. begin to get to the tip of the iceberg of some of the things mm. that you're sharing already. What is it that brought you to this point in life? How did you get there? Mm. I have had the immense privilege in my life of having mentors who have chosen to invest time and attention with me from, I think, a, a relatively young age. And I think coupled that with a genuine curiosity about the world and also a deep empathy within my soul that calls me to understand the systems that we operate in and question how they can evolve 
uh, in the course of my lifetime to be more humane, to be more just. Um, and in particular, the mentorship piece is, is, is really invaluable. You know, I think back to the many people who have walked this earth longer than I have, who've chosen to share lessons or help me navigate difficult conversations or dynamics or decisions. And through all of that grappling, I think it's um, allowed me to acquire and accumulate the collective wisdom, intelligence, and perspective of, of those who've been there, done that, so to speak. And uh, I've, I've always deeply listened and valued their perspective and their mentorship. And through synthesizing all of that over the years and being put in difficult positions myself, I think um, it, it's helped me to understand the world as it is while still aspiring to the world as I would like it to be and recognizing that you've got to operate um, in the systems as they are in order to affect the change that you believe needs to be true for ourselves, for each other, for, for, for the planet. Wow. Mentorship is important. And one of the things I've adopted recently is I, I need a mentor who is hip and young and all of those things, <laughs> as I also have the, the mentors that have had that experience. So I love that you yeah. bring that up. It's, it's so vital and it shows in just who you mm -hmm. are as a person that people have invested oh, thank in you. you. Yeah, and I think that that's something I, I really want the audience to hear is the seeds that we plant do grow. And the world mm -hmm. that we want to see is the world we're creating today. Let's just treat each other kindly. Yeah. How about that? Yes. And to do that, let's start by treating ourselves kindly. I love that. What are some of your, your self-compassion practices? Mm. Well, I love that you use the word practice because I believe in the experience that we all have as humans on this earth, uh, we don't achieve an end stage of enlightenment and therefore everything that we do is a practice and that's certainly true for self-compassion um you know those listening that that know me uh, wouldn't be surprised to hear me say that i am uh, really tough on myself you know i my self-talk isn't always the most positive i certainly wouldn't say the things that i say to myself to my friends and loved ones <laughs> Um, and I bring that up because I think it's important to share openly and honestly um, our interior lives and what shows up for us in our heads that we don't always communicate outwardly to the world um, because we're scared to allow that part of ourselves to be visible. And I bring this up uh, related to your question about self-compassion because sometimes I think that self-talk gets in the way of self-compassion for me. I um, feel like I need to earn self-compassion, like there's something, there's some sort of input that needs to occur before the output. Um, you know, so for example, uh, do I need to achieve these five things before I can, you know, treat myself to a walk? Or even some days I just hop online and find that it's the afternoon and I haven't eaten yet for the day. And I think that we live in a world where uh, we've all had to work harder than ever before to prove our value, and that's particularly true in a competitive labor market uh, like the one that we're in now. Um, so that's a long preface to answer the following question, which you asked, which is, what are my self-compassion practices? 
Um, you know, for me, it's getting outdoors. It, it, it's so important. Um, getting outdoors, reading, um, calling a friend or a loved one, um, getting my heart rate up. You know, sometimes walking is great, but sometimes I've really got to break a sweat and get my heart rate going to release anxiety. Um, but those self-compassion exercises are so important because we live in a time that that is the perfect storm for a crisis of anxiety, both within ourselves and in our communities and, and globally. And um, self-compassion is is the antidote to to those challenges, I believe. Oh, wow. <laughs> yes. Yes to all of that. I I have to get back to getting outdoors again. And I, I miss it. I used to spend every Sunday morning on Mount Charleston. I would go up there and meditate and just just be in mm. the hike up, you know, would get my heart rate up. So many of the things that you mentioned were things that I was able yeah. to do as part of that. And I just I just stopped. There's no real good reason why. I uh, stopped doing that other than I just stopped, you know, so thank you for that reminder. Sure. Yeah. Well, maybe for the part two, we should go to Mount Charleston. We'll wear masks and we can record the second podcast from the summit of uh, whichever trail you like up at Mount Charleston. How about that? Let's do it. I'm down. Okay. <laughs> Sounds good. All right. Self-compassion so, uh, in action. That's right. Compassion in action. I want you to answer the, or, or I should say, complete the, the following sentences. So I'll say a phrase, and then I'd like you to complete it. How's that sound? All right, let's do it. I feel vulnerable when? I'm not in control. I feel loved when? Someone offers a compliment that unique and specific i feel hope when i feel hope when i envision what's to come oh you must be in my notes because that was like the question after this <laughs> <laughs> last one for you i feel inspired by People who speak truth. Mm. How do you define truth? Oh, goodness. Well, isn't this a timely question, given what our former president, Barack Obama, calls an epistemological crisis, where we, we are all grappling with a shared understanding of the truth? Um, I mean, this is a question that's been asked for centuries, right? And we still haven't come up with necessarily uh, a shared definition of the truth. But I think the closest we can get to it is um, truth is a set of facts that are verified and corroborated by evidence and sources and, um, and uh, established over time. And we've got to hold on to those because we will unravel as a people and as a society if we don't uh, if we don't recognize a shared truth. So I do an exercise in workshops and, and when I'm doing certain things where I will put up a color palette of red on a screen. And mm. I will ask the question, which one of these colors is red? And in the big picture, they are all red. 
if you're an mm. artiste, which I am not, or a graphic designer, you know that sure. the, this is cranberry and this is maroon or whatever it may be. Mm. But the, the point that I, I try to illustrate is there are always shades of truth outside of the you know capital T truth. I'll then mm-hmm. follow that, that color palette up with a question that says, two plus two equals five, true or false? And then I'll you know, foster some conversation around that. And then I'll you know, advance the slide and it'll say, it's true. Two plus two is about five. And so I think that there is something really special about what's happening, particularly in our political environment where you know, we have alternative facts where it, it can challenge us and help us to grow and become more aware of the seven plus billion perspectives of truth that exist, being able to validate those perspectives, to even accept those perspectives as true while still maintaining our own. And so there's kind of an interesting balance at work that I think is really helping us to grow and to birth. You know, birthing is painful. If, if you have a birth, mm. natural, no medicine, nothing like that, it's going to hurt. That's just the way it works. But dying, if it's natural, is generally pretty peaceful. You take that final breath and it's kind of quiet. So you have these, these interesting things happening. I think we're in a period of birthing, which is why it feels so violent and feels so hard. And what we are birthing is a greater understanding of what is real and what is true. Given my preface, <laughs> what are your thoughts again on, on the, the way we're experiencing truth in these times? Mm. Yeah, I think that there's, you know, the exercise that you brought up around the color red and the shades that accompany it. Um, certainly there's at least an objective truth that those shades of red belong in a particular category. Uh, And so while it's true that our perspective shapes what we see, um, there's still a truth, right? There's still the recognition that we have come to an agreement as a people that when we see a particular color, that it belongs in a family of colors. So if it's cranberry or salmon, um, that belongs in the red category. Um, and so I, I think that exercise is really fascinating because it requires us to agree that there is at least some shared uh, similarities between the different shades of red. And yet I may see it differently because I have, you know, an Apple iMac retina display and someone else may be looking at it from their Samsung phone and the way the pixels are, um, you know, show up on the screens are, are different. And so they may arrive at a different conclusion. Um, but that doesn't change the fact that there's some shared truth there. And I think what's different about this moment is that there are those who are saying red is green. And there's a fine line here, and I think that's why the argument that I'm making is starting to get rather nuanced and probably boring for the audience, quite frankly, (laughs) because grappling with the fine line between perspective and truth is, is difficult, and yet we have to stay engaged in it. And I think we do need to acknowledge that there are universal truths 
And yet our experience of those truths may be different. And those are two different conversations, I believe. Wow. Our experience of the truth may be different. I, I like the way that you, right. you position that. And for the audience, I am coming back to the Imagining Vegas question, I promise. But I've got to ask this first. Given that there are a lot of people, far more than I ever would have imagined, that are saying, no, this is green when it's clearly red, maybe a shade of red, mm. but it's clearly not green. We know it. At least yeah. we know what it's not. <laughs> like we could agree on that, mm. right? How do we still employ compassion when people are hostile against the very notion? Mm. Yeah, I mean, this, I actually spend my time thinking a lot about this question. You know, how do I hold compassion in my heart for? leaders who I believe are intentionally distorting the truth for their own personal interests. And I think what's true about the human experience is that we all have traumas in our lives that cause us to behave the way we do, make associations the way that we do, think the way that we do, speak the way that we do, act the way that we do. Um, and for those who look at red and attempt to convince the world that it's green, um, there's something in their experience that has called them to undermine, um, that shared set of reality and truth, whether I think the behavior is justified, um, and whether we need to hold them accountable is a different conversation than whether or not you have compassion for them. So I actually think it compassion and accountability are, you know, where those two things meet, I think that's what justice is. Um, and I think that over Alex, the next few years, yeah. Alex, gotta pause you. I'm, I'm sorry, I, I hate interrupting. Okay. And I need you to say that again. Um, let's see if I can say it again. Uh, compassion and accountability, where those two things meet, that's, that's, where justice begins. That's yes, so much yes. <laughs> I'm so sorry. much please, yes. Please so, go ahead. Sorry to interrupt your thought. That was just so good. We had to crystallize it and get that again. No, I'm glad that you did. And I, you know, I think in person it's so much easier to interrupt and have more of a natural flow. And sometimes on Zoom, that can be more difficult. But you know, all this to say, every human has their sets of traumas and experiences that inform the way they show up in the world. And so for those that look at red and convince people that it's green, um, we do have to have compassion for them, and yet we also have to hold them accountable. What does holding someone like that accountable look like? And, and the reason I, I want to dive into that just a bit is let's let's take it away from leaders because leaders are I don't want to you know act like it's a caste system but I mean it kind of is but that's another podcast too but yeah this, let's but, just let's just call out the systemic inequities like they are right yeah but <laughs> yeah. let's just bring it down to just our our relationships on a community level a family level we have you okay. know the the aunt that has been convinced by you know whatever 
cult out, is out there right now that you know this is true and this is happening and, and these people are doing these horrible things. How do we hold that type of person accountable while uh. still being compassionate, recognizing their trauma? Because you're absolutely right, mm-hmm. a lot of this stems from even childhood traumas. So with all of that kind of happening at the same time, where do we even begin? Maybe that's the question I should ask. Yeah. Again, super timely question, because just before you and I hopped on the Zoom for this podcast, I went and checked the mail and I got this newspaper or it was purporting to be a newspaper. You know, it looked like a newspaper. It smelled like a newspaper. It presented as a newspaper. And yet the words on the page are fundamentally untrue and misleading. Um, so, for example, on the cover of one of the sections, Um, It shows that there are several states that are still yet to be called for Joe Biden um, because there's pending litigation. Um, And when the truth is presented in a package that lends itself credibility or authority or legitimacy, for those who may not yet have cultivated or refined the ability to discern what the agenda of a particular entity is in purporting a set of facts, um, I think that that's the real difficulty. And so what does accountability look like for the family member who um, chooses to believe a story um, that is factually incorrect? I, I think it goes really powerfully to questions about our rule of law and the systems that we use to govern ourselves and how private platforms and companies have transcended um, what we would see as the traditional press, right? So for example, um, Facebook and Twitter um, are not inherently news organizations. Uh, They were designed and intended to be platforms where people could connect. And that's the story that they tell us is that they're creating online communities. Well, intention and what happens when billions of people grasp onto an intention and it develops its own evolutionary life cycle, uh, the company is ultimately now responsible for whatever their platform is the arbiter of. And so I bring all of these kind of threads up and I'm weaving them together to say that we have a First Amendment that guarantees freedom of the press um, and freedom of speech. Um, And that is a uh, treasured and cherished part of our constitutional rule of law. Um, And yet we live in 2020, where the people who designed the Constitution could never have perceived of private corporations that can disseminate knowledge transnationally um, and have users on those platforms stamp it with the um, appearance of legitimacy and credibility. And so I don't know necessarily that you can go to an individual who's choosing to believe uh, a set of data or information or facts that are incorrect, that yet um, determine how they perceive the world. I don't know that the conversation should be, how do we hold that person accountable? I think the conversation should be, how do we hold these platforms accountable? And how do we educate through our public schools citizens who have the critical thinking ability to know uh, which institutions that are arbiters of the truth um, are, are giving information that is factually accurate. 
So I think that it's a constellation of a lot of very difficult and um, obstinate challenges that we're going to have to answer over the next decade and beyond. Yeah, our our democracy is only as strong as our educational system. And I stole that quote from someone, I forget who, so I'll give you credit if I remember. <laughs> but that what you just said really brings us back to, to really how we started, which is dealing with unsustainable systems and structures. And this is definitely a bigger topic than we'll, we'll be able to, to deal with today. But we have to look at the very nature of our democracy and how it functions. Mm. Things like the Electoral College, there, you know, people didn't even think about that, you know, years ago, but now it's like a real topic of conversation. And now right. you know, millions of people are like, you know, I really wish I had paid attention in, in my government class. Like that would have been helpful now. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, we're in a different yeah. space. Time has flown by. This has been so amazing for me. Thank you for joining the podcast. I know our audience Thank you. is grateful for, for what you shared. As we close, I just want you to share your vision for Las Vegas in the future. If you had that magic wand and you could remake Vegas into exactly what you think would be ideal, what would that look like? Uh it would be more integrated and it would be more adequately invested in so that everybody who calls this place home can participate in the promise of our community, which is being able to raise a family, earn a good living, live securely, give back to your community, uh, and enjoy the many amenities that we uniquely have by virtue of living in one of the most internationally known destinations in the world. As a native, what's your favorite part of our city? Mm. There's so much that I love. Um, the first two things that come to mind are Red Rock and the Smith Center. I love them both. We yeah. Visit that after Mount Charleston. How about that? All right. That sounds good. We're already making our 2021 post-vaccine plans. That's right. <laughs> awesome. Well, Alex, thank you again for joining the podcast today. We will definitely have to do this again. And I'm just so appreciative of your insights and the way that you perceive the world and the way that you share your truth. I think our audience is really going to get a lot out of this conversation. So be prepared for questions. They're going to hunt you down on social media and find you and connect because they love to Great. do that. So Well, I look forward to continuing the conversation on whatever platform or form that takes. Awesome. And we'll leave it there. Okay. Thank you. It was an amazing transformative moment in my life. And I'm so glad it happened because it has fueled my life with meaning um, to share with others and uh, hope and look, look what it did. <laughs> <laughs>